0: And post modernity with our special guest, Urban Hannon, making his second appearance. Welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you for having me. So, last time we talked about his article against heterosexuality. This time we're going to be talking about several movies that I've been dying to talk about with someone for a while. First, we'll talk about Bride's Head Revisited. Um, we'll focus on the Granada television series from the 80s. Then, we'll talk about Call Me By Your Name. And lastly, well, Simon. So,
1: and just to, to flash back to this real quick, when yes. you first asked me to do this podcast, you sent me the manifesto of Cracks in Postmodernity, oh, yes, which I think is also your first episode on here, right? As you read yeah. in it out, and these are the three texts you mentioned in conjunction with each other yep. um, to talk about, yeah, different ways that uh, we need to crack through postmodernity, but different uh, ways that art and culture have manifested and engaged with the sorts of issues that I was talking about and against heterosexuality in recent years, or in the case of Brideshead, not such
0: recent years. Yeah, so you should listen to that first episode. But so yeah, basically in this one, my thesis, which you can see in the the manifesto, is that in Brideshead, we have a pretty much traditional Catholic narrative of love, desire, specifically when we're talking about love between people of the same sex, In Call Me By Your Name, we see a kind of classical Greek pagan narrative, um, more so one of pederasty or of um, ephebophilia, whatever you want to call it, that does acknowledge that there is some kind of difference between, you know, the love between a man and a woman and two men. And lastly, Love, Simon represents this very bourgeois, secular, humanistic uh, narrative that's become, you know, pretty commonplace nowadays that basically proclaims love is love, that all love is neutral, there's no real difference. But again, speaks to this larger cultural sensibility that a kid like Simon would be growing up in. Yeah, the way you put this in the manifesto
1: was the pagan pederasty of Call Me By Your Name, the Christian ascetical chastity of Brideshead Revisited, and the secular bourgeois love is love
0: story of Love, Simon. Exactly. So we are going to start from the top down, Brideshead Revisited, written by... Evelyn how do you say wow Lowe, Evelyn wow Yeah. Everyone debates that. But um, yeah, so the novel, everyone should read the novel because it's you know a masterpiece. And actually, can I also put in a plug for the audiobook? Oh, so okay. do read the novel by all means. But the audiobook of this
1: is my favorite audiobook ever recorded. It's recorded by Jeremy Irons, who also plays Charles in the BBC mm-hmm. version of this, the miniseries version of this that we'll talk about. And
0: it's yeah, absolutely fantastic. So, but also Waugh said that he regrets writing the book later in life. He said that.
1: He came to see it, I think, as somewhat indulgent. um, And, yeah, came to prefer prefer his sort of honored trilogy, um, which is also an interesting work that is worth a conversation another time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then even the novel version, I believe the story is, that Waugh edited it um, in a later edition um and kind of toned down some of the things he found more indulgent in an earlier version and you can see that also in the series um comparing it with the the version of the novel you'll find if you buy it today yeah but personally as much as i love many many things that law did from the kind of satires before conversion to various of the works after his conversion Helen was incredible etc turning constantine's mother into a proper british lady um to me, Brad said absolutely his masterpiece.
0: Yeah, and most people would agree. Um, but yeah, so we're going to focus on Sebastian and Charles. So how do we sum this up for people who haven't read it? Sebastian is coming from, what, a noble family? What is it considered? What are the Marshmains? Yeah, definitely a noble family.
1: Um, to be honest... I don't want to tell people like, you know, don't listen to this until you've done the reading necessarily, but this is such an amazing and important novel that I don't really want you to spoil it by listening to a, I'll speak to my half of this podcast, a (laughs) stupid podcast before encountering this work in itself. Um, So if I can encourage you to read the book and then listen to this
0: episode, you should watch the miniseries. Yeah. The miniseries is
1: incredible. Like the Pride and Prejudice miniseries, also BBC, Mm um, This is just an incredibly successful version of translating literature to the screen uh, with very little remainder, I think, actually, partially because there's so much um, narration done by Jeremy Irons just reading parts of the novel in the background that you don't have the same issue you have in film versions of different works of literature where everything that was internal has to become external because it's all just showing you and then the dialogue between characters, etc. The Brent said miniseries really gives you a lot of Charles's own internal thoughts all along the way
0: through that and the, a narrative, a narrative voice as well. On that note, Call Me by Your Name, the movie would have been much better if they did some of that because you lose so much of Elio's character.
1: I disagree with that really strongly, actually. But let's well, put okay. a pin in I mean, that before we get there because right, that's we'll a case where I actually it. like the movie much more okay. than the novel. All right, but fair. we'll yeah. get
0: there. We'll get there. So no, but Sebastian's from this family um you know british catholic family which is you know a kind of loaded position to be in in england at that time um but is very conflicted because his mother lady marshmane is very manipulative very controlling the father has left the family is with his mistress and Sebastian becomes this party boy, very debaucherous at Oxford, who is you know, not really caring much about his studies, getting drunk, hanging out with this, uh, this loose group of people, but is always in conflict, you know, in terms of his faith. Like, he would be what I would call the archetypal bad Catholic, who acknowledges, you know, there are certain truths, but doesn't find himself to be in a position to follow them. Yeah, whereas
1: Charles, who is our kind of um, perspective character for the novel, um, He is actually first person from Charles's perspective. Um, He is not Catholic, indeed is not religious in any way. He is the more kind of typical Brit at the time, who is a first year student at Oxford when we meet him, who comes from a family his mother has actually passed. His dad is a little bit crazy, but at any rate is a sort of properly Protestant, but basically um, non-practicing, we would say today. Um, Family where none of this factors in very much to their life. They're polite Christians in some sense, but Charles identifies as an atheist at this stage in the novel in the sort of fashionable way um, that one would going into college. And I think that's a good sort of entree to Charles is he's just sort of fashionable. He is typical. He is coming to these things, to this friendship with Sebastian, to what end up becoming very large questions for him, in a way that is just sort of superficial and very taken with the externals of the life that he comes to find through this world of Sebastian flight. Um, And so these two men meet in a fantastic scene uh, with Sebastian vomiting through Charles's first floor windows at his Oxford college. Um, And they strike up a great friendship that. Is interesting. So, okay, I reread this book this year for the first time in a decade, and you know what's wild is when I encountered this book for the first time, and I think I read it two or three times in the course of a few years when I was in college or a young adult, um, more of a young adult than I am today. um, I first of all thought that the most important part of the book was part one, Eden Arcadia Mm Echo, and I didn't really notice anything but the actual narrative being relayed in that part. So this time, I reread this this year, I'm not that old, I'm 33, but I'm at a different point in my life than I was then, and certainly than Charles and Sebastian are in part one of the book. Two things struck me. One, part one is not the most important part of this book by a long shot. It's also now not the most interesting part of this book to me at all, and two, that's not really what's going on in part one. It's not just relaying a bunch of events that happened in college. The most important voice in part one is the voice of the older Charles looking back and telling this story, coming from a very different place than the character Charles at age 18 or whatever, who's living through this. Um, so the book happens in three parts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also a kind of... Um, framing device in the prologue and conclusion epilogue Mm -hmm. um, to the book with the much later Charles revisiting head um, in a very different capacity during the war. Um, But yeah, the friendship between Charles and Sebastian is beautiful and interesting and imperfect and a preparation for something so much bigger that comes later, um, both a particular relationship Mm -hmm. between Charles and Sebastian's sister, which I hope you know because I hope if you haven't read the book you already paused this and wouldn't read it, but then ultimately and finally and the real point of the novel for a relationship between Charles and Christ our Lord. Um, mm, yeah. And so yeah, it's an interesting thing to return with that perspective, both Charles's age looking back and perhaps our age looking
0: back on Eden Arcadia Ego and asking what's really going on here? Yeah, so, I mean, just to speak about their relationship in the beginning. So we see that Sebastian is this decadent, flamboyant kind of figure. Um, it's, you know, it's hinted at that he has some kind of same-sex inclinations, but while is very subtle about it. He's not, you know, he's not making this into some kind of, um, you know, like, you know what's going on, but he doesn't have to say it to you. And I think part of his his entry into the friendship with Charles is because he does have this desire for some kind of intimacy. It was for, you know, some kind of affection from another guy. So can we talk about this yes. for a minute? Yes.
1: Um, because I do think, I mean, we may just disagree at a certain point about what's going on in Sebastian, but I do at least think we can agree that it would be a really serious misreading of the book and a mischaracterization of Sebastian to think that what Wall is saying is this is a homosexual who is somehow um, subverting or denying or indulging or something um, this identity that he knows is essentially his Mm. and that he has to hide from his mother or something like that, which is often the view of this story that you get. But I actually would go even farther than that um, and say that I actually think from Wa's perspective sex is pretty unimportant um, in the life of Charles and Sebastian. Well, yeah,
0: because they don't yeah. have sex. Unless you watch the recent remake well, movie. Well, let, let's come back <laughs> to the recent remake movie version. Yes. Um,
1: but yeah, so I, I said this to a priest friend recently when we were talking about Brideshead mm-hmm. And he asked, Well, I don't know, what's your read? Do you think that Charles and Sebastian ever, you know, committed sodomy? And I said, To be honest, I think from Waugh's perspective, it's just not a very important question. Like, Charles and Sebastian are living a very young, inebriated, figuratively and literally, uh, superficial, rich life in these years. But I think from Waugh's perspective, the question of did these two men ever fall to unchastity with each other is as like weird and out of left field and inappropriate a question as the question yeah. did Charles used to go home at night during his college years and abuse himself before bed, commit sins against chastity with himself mm-hmm. or something? And I think from Waz perspective, if you posed either of these questions to him about Charles by himself or Charles and Sebastian together, Waz perspective would be, What's wrong with you? Like that's, I mean, maybe yes, maybe no, but in either case, like, not important to the story and given the superficiality of these men at this point, like, not existentially significant and not something they would have understood is existentially significant in any case anyway. So, I mean, I tend to think the answer is no, I don't think that's what's going on here, but the bigger point is I just tend to think this isn't a very important question, and it's a question that we, because of a lot of our own issues, bring to the text rather than an issue that the text brings to us.
0: I'm gonna agree on a like meta level that it's true that like this is really unimportant to the whole you know plot I will say I mean did Sebastian probably have some kind of desires for Charles in that way quite possibly is it important no but I do think this does speak to this larger pagan versus Catholic discourse that, was playing into which is very much different from what we're going to see in love simon because ultimately the focus is not oh are they secretly gay but it's they're living a life of debauchery they're living a very self-indulgent life where they're getting drunk they're partying they're not taking their studies seriously and it makes me think of paul and the letter to who is it the romans yeah so it's like, one probably yeah yeah because like romans paul is basically saying That these people are exchanging their natural desires for, you know, perverse ones, not because that's who they really are deep down, but because they're so caught up in their decadence and their debauchery, their, you know, lack of regard for the design of nature that like, yeah, they start to play around and transgress the boundaries of God's creation. Which
1: according to St. Paul, right, goes hand in hand with atheism slash blasphemy slash heresy yeah so like you see mistakes about god and mistakes about how men are supposed to relate to their fellow men exactly. Somehow go together
0: yeah so like there is it's like i think it's anachronistic to read this identitarian kind of narrative into it um but again any semblance of like homoerotic desire i think we would attribute to some kind of pagan decadent element going on in their relationship and we see, um, we see first, like, there's a point when they go to visit, uh, uh, what's his name? Lord Marshmay, the father? Yep, yep, in Venice. In Venice with Clara. Clara. Is yeah, that the mistress? The mistress. And Clara observes that, you know, their friendship, it's cute. There's something immature about it. And mm-hmm. in a very Italian way, which is very different from both the British and American understanding, like, it's natural for people of the same sex to have this kind of affective bond, which isn't necessarily sexual, but there is this immaturity. Like at a certain point you outgrow it and you recognize that yeah, like certain type of affection is designed to be ordered towards the opposite sex. So like there's that observation, but there's also the point when Bridie asks Charles, Lord Bridie, asks Charles, when Sebastian is in was it Algeria or Tunisia? Yeah. One, I, one of those. Well, or is at least pretending to be in them well. Well. <laughs> he's he's with this the German guy. And he's you know, he's taking care of. Them, oh somebody? I see. That, yeah. Yeah, that sorry, one. sorry. I was thinking of the,
1: the tour through I guess maybe that was Oh, the that, oh with, with uh, the professor who
0: he was not really with because he was drunk at the time. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So no, but he's taking care of this guy and Lord Variety is like you don't suppose you're doing anything vicious as in like Vice, do you? And Charles reacts like, you know, shut up, Bridey. Like, what are you talking about? So it's it's just interesting the way that they address this particular vice, or that he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, well,
1: and I think Charles's point there is the right point, right? Like, mm-hmm. Bridey has this sort of prurient interest in, like, do you think Sebastian is giving in to sins against chastity with mm-hmm. this German guy? And Charles's point <laughs> is like... Do you see Sebastian? Like, this is your question? Yeah, exactly. Like This is not the point right now. And this is a, a time in Sebastian's life where he is an absolute drunk, um, is extremely ill, is like mm-hmm. drinking himself to death, uh, has not had contact with polite society in many years, and is just, I mean, basically today, if he did not have his parents' wealth and support behind him this is a man who would be a homeless man on the streets of New York or of London or whatever Um, and so the question of do you think he's a sodomite is just sort of like not the point right now like maybe but part of a much bigger set of problems like and I think what's really clear in the novel is that the issues driving Sebastian to Mm -hmm. failure um, ultimately I mean not ultimately not in the sense of damnation um, we'll talk about where he ends up But driving him in the first part of the novel, the end of the first part of the novel, Sebastian Contramundum, is not at all sexual. Like, what's going on between Sebastian and his mother has nothing to do with his sexual identity and everything to do with how this woman's set of expectations for her son in relation to religion, but also in relation to society and propriety... Um, are something that he experiences is such an anxiety-provoking burden that every time she tries to help, it just makes it infinitely worse. And it's this sort of communication breakdown between generations that, uh, frankly, um, is pretty prescient in terms of now very familiar stories between baby baby boomers and millennials all the time. But it is this just, like, very, very severe inability for this mother who loves him very much to be able to act in a way that would do anything but drive him into deeper and deeper despair.
0: Yeah, and I think the greater drama of Sebastian's I don't know his life is again yeah, it's not one of like committing particular sins, but it's this understanding of love as this indulgent possessive kind of thing versus self-gift charity so yeah it's not whether or not he's having sex with charles it's the fact that he's using charles to fulfill this need and he becomes so possessive to the point that you know he doesn't want his pa- his mother his sister to be spending any time with him like you're my friend you like you fulfill me you another person something that i you know like he's creating an idol out of this friend and you know we see that as his life plays on that he it's like everything is ripped out of his hands providentially to the point that all he can do is depend on the charity of, well, at the end of his life of these friars in the hospital in Northern Africa. Um, And I don't know, like, I think what we see in the end is like, before he goes to the hospital, like he's, he's taking care of this German guy. So already this kind of tendency towards attachment, especially uh, being attached to other men starts to turn into this self gift, this charity, But then at this last point, he's totally, you know, a total drunk and is relying on the kindness of these friars to survive. So it's like this very messy story through grace eventually brings him to fulfillment, the fulfillment of a charitable kind of love, not this possessive, indulgent one.
1: Yeah. And I think we should say, too, that in part one, so I agree with you completely. I think all of that is there in terms of the sort of inordinateness of... um, Charles, unfortunately, becoming a piece in this larger ploy between Sebastian and his family. But even though there is that possessiveness, even though there is that sort of corruption of this friendship, there's a reason that the friendship between Charles and Sebastian is something that's so celebrated and attractive and beautiful. I think especially to guys who are about that age, Catholic guys who encounter this and think like, either I recognize myself and my friend or friends in this, And how wonderful that there is a Catholic work of literature that recognizes this special thing and celebrates it, mm-hmm. or reads this, and maybe these days, unfortunately, this is the more common reaction, reads this and thinks, God, I long for that so badly, mm-hmm. like what I wouldn't give for the kind of friend at this point in my life that Sebastian had in Charles, or vice versa. And I think that's supposed to be there, too. Um, So evil is always parasitic upon a good and an imitation of a good, but their relationship at its root is a good relationship. It's a good friendship, and it's a good friendship that, unfortunately, um, a lot of Sebastian's inner demons, and some of Charles's too, um, end up um, taking to a messy place. But I think we can relate to that in life, too, right? Like, these really special early friendships you have as you first kind of come into the fullness of human life and adulthood are these sort of blissful, easy, wonderful, carefree things that time goes on suffering ensues and please God, those friendships persist and become stronger than ever, but they're not carefree for long. Um, and I think that it captures a really beautiful, interesting moment in sort of emotional maturity and in, um, the trajectory of friendship in a way that not many novels do, yeah. especially these days. And I think this is where we'll end up um, in this conversation. But when you compare the beautiful BBC version of this to the movie version that I refuse to watch, but that yeah, I've, I've seen the trailer of. So this was yeah. like, what, 2010 or something? When did this Yeah, movie come or something of? like that. They made a movie version of Brideshead Revisited with Emma Thompson, who I love, so a shame that she was involved in this. She's Lady Marchmain in the movie version, that basically turns this into a story about a love triangle between a brother, a sister, and their friend, Charles, manipulated by this mother. And that is how our generation tells the story of Brideshead, encounters the story of Brideshead, and puts out stories about... Friends in young adulthood. It's all got to be all about sex. And what's great about Brideshead, the actual Brideshead, is that it says, no, this is a really special thing that people maybe ought to, um, but often do encounter at this stage of life. And guess what? It's not about that. Um, That's not to say it's perfect and Mm -hmm. pure. It's not perfect and pure. Um, It's immature. But Brideshead tells a kind of story that I think would be really hard to tell today. Um, And the versions of this we get today instead, I think, end up making me very sad. Um, Because basically, I wrote about this a lot in the essay that we talked about in our first episode Mm -hmm. here, but one of the worst things about sexual orientation becoming this dominant lens through which we see all of human affectivity is that it makes friendship, maybe especially between men, really impossible. Um, Deep friendship, costly friendship, friendship where you really belong to the other person. Because the risk today is that, well, that's gay. Well, if you're too close with him, that means there's something else going on. And the Catholic response to that is... Friendship is a better thing than sexual relationships, certainly than immoral sexual relationships like you'd have with two members of the same sex or many (laughs) cases of relationships of people on the opposite sex. But even between the best of romantic relationships, namely familial relationships between a husband and wife in marriage, still celibate friendship is the higher thing. A sign of which is that we will have celibate friendship in heaven but in heaven we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Christian marriage is great, but in fact, what we have, predominantly with our own sex, but also by the grace of the sacrament, with one spouse, mm. in its best ways, in its highest kind of range, is a celibate relationship that is the life of heaven begun here on earth. And that's a better thing. And it's so yeah. hard today to present art that shows that. Instead we have, you know, quote unquote just friends, which is this like kind of shallow lesser thing where you hang out on occasion yeah, but don't do not pursue share anything. yourself uh,
0: yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the difference. Like I don't know. When you look at the trajectory, particularly of Charles, it's like he starts on this base, very instinctive level with Sebastian, which I'm, you know, just in the context of this conversation would be the pagan level, the unnatural level, moves on to Julia, which would represent you know, the natural, uh, the potential for procreation, etc. But because of the, the circumstances of Julia's marriage is kind of propelled forward to the supernatural, which is ultimately the trajectory of all natural relationships. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about Rafalovich in the previous episode of, like, um, this tension between the unnatural, the self-indulgent, the decadent, and the supernatural, ultimately, you know, living relationships for the glory of God, gives meaning to the natural option. To the point that it's no longer just this respectable bourgeois kind of ideal, but it's it's a sign, it's a stepping stone that leads us to this greater ambit of love, which is never-ending, which is much more fulfilling than just either sexual or romantic fulfillment. And for Sebastian, like, he has to go through this purgation to reach that kind of ambit of love. He has to go through, you know, all this suffering. But ultimately, he's much more fulfilled by the end. Um, And we'll see, like, it's not like these love, love is love stories, like Love, Simon, that says, you know, our fulfillment comes from, Finding the person who's going to fulfill our emptiness, as you know, as we said, the Obergefell document reads that marriage is to basically fulfill your needs. Obviously, when you not cry happen. out lonely and abandoned in the night, that there be someone to answer. Yeah, that's not going to happen, and most of us, you know, we know that. But again, it's like even while I was presenting this greater dynamic, this greater possibility of fulfillment that transcends any natural human idea, and indeed finds its ultimate conclusion in. What I, I guess, while it
1: comes to think is kind of indulgent and overly obvious, maybe the way Tolkien thought Lewis was, mm-hmm. but the, for me, I, I guess I'm a, uh, I am I do not know, narrow, shallow, superficial person who needs the obvious. I think that closing scene and the Eucharistic mm-hmm. element yes. of that closing scene is one of the most beautiful things ever written, yeah. um, and the fact that all of this ends in the sacrament of friendship, which is mm-hmm. Christ giving himself to us in his exactly. body— is just incredible that all of this all along the way was a longing after this is my body, this is Christ bodily present to us as our friend.
0: Yeah. And I the other thing I'd mention is the fact that his name is Sebastian, also very symbolic because you know, although a lot of people like to say Sebastian is this undercover gay icon, in reality, Sebastian is the Christian rendering of this kind of homoerotic motif in pagan art, which you know, the pagan version would be that of Adonis, like this beautiful male youth who you know, everyone loves because again, this elusive sense of aesthetic, youthful beauty, which ultimately dies as happens in the story of Adonis. But with Sebastian, you know, the young male youth who rather than exalting his own youthfulness or his aesthetic beauty is willing to die for this greater love is willing to be penetrated by the arrows of martyrdom. So you see that again, Sebastian may veer towards this kind of indulgent kind of youthful ideal, but at the end of the day, he lives up to his namesake. He, you know, he suffers in the name of this greater love and is redeemed by it. Um, And it's, I don't know, like when we think of the recent remake, you just see how unimaginative our cultural ethos is now that like the highest form of fulfillment is basically sexual is earthly, and, like, even the scenes when you when you see Lord Marshman's conversion and also Emma Thompson, like, they make her this kind of religious fanatic, which totally is, it's so reductive and unimaginative and boring. And the, I also wanted to mention there was a kind of spin-off that was made a few years ago called Those People, which is, like, a modern retelling of the story taking place in Manhattan between two very rich Jewish guys. And it's, I do, I mean, it's super graphic for those who are you know guarding their chastity but i have to say like there's something very true about it because it's basically like if the recent remake of it is the you know the love is love bourgeois kind of rendering this one is more akin to call me by your name it's a very pagan rendering that shows that first of all the erotic tension between the two it's not love is love like there's a very pagan element to it that ends ultimately in destruction, because this exaltation of indulgence and decadence is not built to last, and it's at least it's very honest about it. So watch it if you if you want to, I'm warning <laughs> you, but I, it's interesting at least to see those different plays on the, the story.
1: Yeah, I, I've never thought about this before, but when you were talking about Sebastian Sam, and I, I think I... Um, have a more critical relationship than you might to uh, some of the interpretations of Saint Sebastian art across time. But one thing that occurred to me is that Sebastian's teddy bear in the story is named Aloysius. Mm -hmm. And I've never thought about this before, but Saint Aloysius Gonzaga is another really interesting um, figure whose hagiography is worth, and of course I say hagiography not in any pejorative sense, um, is worth bringing in to this story um, because of course, of course St. Aloysius is this famously chaste youth. Mm, um, interesting. And there's something about, I have no idea if that's intentional on in law's part, but it wouldn't I surprise do. me that this thing that Sebastian is attached to, uh. um, but in a way that is itself sort of um, idealistic uh, in an unreal, fanciful way childlike but really childish way um, and never gets fully integrated um, so anyway
0: interesting thing. that's a very interesting thought mm. yeah and also um, I'm going to post this picture I went to the head Castle and I actually held the bear Aloysius from the movie it was a very cool experience um, but no but then so Luca Guadagnino we're about to talk about was supposed to Directed version of Brian's head, right?
1: Yeah, which is really weird, right? They just remade this movie already in like, you know, a typically modern way a decade and change ago. And yet the rumor for several years now has been that Luca was about to get to do his version of this film, which I have been absolutely dreading. I mean, I wasn't going to watch it. I didn't watch the last one either, but oh my gosh, what an absolutely terrible idea. And thankfully, just I think in the last couple of weeks, at least I came into uh, awareness of this in the last couple of weeks, that project has fallen through, and Luca Guarinino will not be putting his stamp on Evil and Law, for which I am
0: infinitely grateful. Thank Providence. Um, but speaking of Luca, call me by your name. Um, written by Andre Asima, who was on this podcast not too long ago. Um, I find fascinating because it's very. It's the epitome of this classical, particularly Greek, pagan understanding of same-sex desire. Um, and I think, despite the fact that a lot of people when the movie came out, presented it as this, oh, love is love, this beautiful coming out story, the reality is that's <laughs> very far from the truth. Both Andre understands that and also Luca you Guadagnino. Know, um, there's this very pederastic Dynamic between Oliver and Elio, which is hinted at throughout the movie. I don't think there's any point where it's made to be this like a oh, totally neutral love story. Um, what, what, what is your take on the dynamic between the two characters? So I'll first say, um, Call
1: Me By Your Name is an example of a movie. I just used this distinction on another podcast, actually, but is an example of a movie that I would praise without recommending. Um, By which I mean, I am not telling you, listener of this podcast, that this is a movie you definitely need to see. In fact, depending on who you are, this may be a movie you really, really, really do not want to see. You have to use your discernment. For sure. But actually, so in context of the other podcast, just because this is slightly relevant to this, uh, I was doing a Josiah's episode talking about temperance and was talking about two different movies about sex addiction, pornography addiction... Mm -hmm. Don John and oh, yeah. shame. Um, and I was saying that, this is an aside, but uh, you know, relevant to these themes, I was saying that the Catholic blogosphere got all excited about Don John when it came out. Mm-hmm. And that was really disappointing to me because I actually think that Don John, that movie with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Scarlett Johansson and Julianne Moore and whoever, was way, way, way too light and um, comfortable in its presentation of pornography addiction was kind of the point in that movie and that made it like not too threatening for um the catholic discourse machine to talk about Mm -hmm. whereas shame is um michael fassbender and um oh gosh what's her name um carrie mulligan okay is his sister And that is one of the darkest movies I've ever seen. Spike Lee. I love Spike Lee. It's not my favorite, Spike Lee. Like, movie-wise, I don't even think it's that great. But in terms of showing you the horror of sex addiction, oh my gosh, that movie is so much better than Don John. Anyway, I I mentioned that just because in the case of Shame, I said, I'm going to praise this movie for what it does, what it shows, Mm -hmm. without telling anyone they need to go see it. And likewise, Call Me By Your Name. So I first saw Call Me By Your Name um, last spring sometime. And I knew that it was on Netflix, at least. So, like I said, I live in Italy. In Italy, it is. And in America, it's not. It's not, okay. No, so, I'm just
0: going to say, I downloaded it when I was in Italy, and when I came back the next day, it was gone, because I was in America. Sorry, oh, sad.
1: Um <laughs> But I actually ended up watching it, because a Dominican priest friend recommended it to me and it had been recommended to him by his frat boy of a little brother who mm-hmm. he says has a hollow leg for American light beer. And this combination of people, i was like, Oh, this is not what I would have expected for this movie in terms of recommenders. So I checked it out. And to me, this movie was so unbelievably affecting. Um, it's difficult to explain just how profoundly it kind of, shook me and there are so many things that go into that I think when it comes to aesthetics Luca has my number like no other director yeah. um, but then also the music that goes into that movie with Sufjan Stevens True. a lot of those songs but Mystery of Love especially yeah. is I think the best song Sufyan's ever recorded are you a fan not a huge fan but the tracks in that film I think are incredible Yeah. Um I mean What's I'm not, not a fan Gideon
0: yeah, what's that Something. called? Visions of, Visions of Gideon? And then...
1: Um, loaded. yeah, Very loaded. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I encountered this movie, and it just kind of pulled me over, and I remember sitting in the credits of the movie, which is itself a scene in the movie, yes. and crying, and thinking two things right then. Yep. One, I thought about St. Augustine and the Confessions, yep. talking yep. about going to theater shows, and weeping over the misfortunes that afflict bad people rather than weeping over your own sins, and thinking too, this is why in other ages we had an index because this is the sort of thing that is so compelling for trying to convince you of truths that are not truths basically. Really? And yeah, because yeah. what I, what I think the ending of the movie makes you do is it makes you root against the older character, Oliver, getting married and having a family. Really, For me, that's very much the effect is the movie convinces you or tries to convince you that, wow, how much better it would have been if these two could have been together. And of course, unfortunately, um, that is where novelistically this goes, not in Call Me By Your Name, but in the sequel that... Yeah, Asimon wrote, I did, that Asimon wrote basically to appease the fans who wanted these two guys to end up together. And he writes this bizarre book that doesn't work at all, uh, in my Mm -hmm. opinion, that another priest friend who I was talking to about this said, yeah, sequel terrible, but you can kind of understand, ex-ante, why that would have to be the case, right, just given what the story is. Mm -hmm. And he's right. But anyway, um, yeah, this movie... Affected me very profoundly. And so I I went to the novel, not only to prepare for this podcast and this conversation with you about how these themes are playing out in our culture right now, but also to come to understand what it was about the movie that I found so affecting. And I think I had a different relationship to these than you did, because for me, I went to the novel and discovered, you know, very well written, kind of postmodern young adults fiction of the lgbtq plus variety um but the novel didn't strike much in me whereas the movie struck a lot in me and some of that is as i say the the sort of um cinematic i have a priest friend who says yeah anything that call me by your name um sort of sets off in the heart could really be resolved by just owning that house in Tuscany. yeah. And it's so true. Like that is such a beautiful set movie, but also I think for me, the setup of all of that, of this Columbia philosophy student showing up in Northern Italy for a summer is also just terrifyingly relatable because I was a Columbia philosophy student who in college lived in Northern Italy for a summer and live in Italy again now. And so this whole setup was just so nostalgic for me. Mm -hmm. And then watching in the movie version, the friendship between these two men, um, Elio and Oliver, so that's Timothy Chalamet and Armie Hammer, develop over the course of the movie, I thought was just this really beautiful thing. And then, unfortunately, this went the only place that any story like this can go today because of our boring blinders in terms of the possibilities of human relationships and friendships, of course they had to end up in bed together because they love each other that much. They're drawn to each other that much. And that was the point at which I just came to kind of mourn what this story might have been and couldn't be in our particular age. And obviously hearing Asiman talk about this on your podcast, um, for him, and this comes through more in the novel, This is really much more of a story, not a simple, like, bougie discovering your gay love is love thing, Mm -hmm. but it is much more a story of um, Elio grappling with this, like, we said in the last episode, Foucault calls uh, the contemporary idea of homosexuality a hermaphrodism of the soul. And that that qualifier definitely applies to Elio in the novel. He's Mm -hmm. discovering in himself this hermaphrodism of the soul and wanting someone to mirror that and recognize that and affirm that and all these different things. But in the movie, I don't really think that comes across. There's no um, introspection in terms of coming to understand who you are or something. Elio, the younger character here is with women over the course of the movie uh, and indeed is affirmed by his family in that. Mm -hmm. And then is with Oliver and comes to love Oliver very much But at no point is there some like realization on the part of either of these characters that like, oh, I'm actually gay or oh, I'm actually trans or oh, I'm actually, you know, both male and female or something in the movie. Um, Whereas in the book you get more of that. And I think part of why this is so compelling to me but also part of why I think it is interestingly reflective of the moment we're in or were in in 2017 when this came out different than when I came out with that essay we were talking about mm-hmm. is that these are not characters who are queer, like no. in any, um, you know, kind of stereotypical flamboyant sense. It's not insignificant that both of these characters are played by actors who, you know, right. are not sleeping with other men in real life to anyone's knowledge, mm-hmm. um, may have some other issues going on there, but, oh, yeah. uh, not that yeah. particular one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so to me, it was just this really beautiful story that ought to have culminated in these men finding a lifelong friendship in one another. And if I can, I want to read a passage from the book that really struck me. It might be my favorite and least favorite passage in the book Mm -hmm. because it just shows, I think so clearly the problem with where we're at in our ability to understand all of this today. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is what Elio says to himself um, just on page 30 of the book. So early on in the summer, in his friendship with Oliver, or his relationship with Oliver, but before they're, you know, um, sexually consummating this in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, He says, the word friendship came to mind, but friendship, as defined by everyone, was alien fallow stuff I cared nothing for. What I may have wanted instead, from the moment he stepped out of the cab to our farewell in Rome, was what all humans ask of one another, what makes life livable. It would have come it would have to come from him first, then possibly from me. There is a law somewhere that says that when one person is thoroughly smitten with the other, the other must unavoidably be smitten as well. Amor canulo amato amar perdona, love which exempts no one who's loved from loving. Francesca's words from the Inferno. Mm-hmm. Just wait and be hopeful. I was hopeful, though perhaps this was what I had wanted all along—to wait forever. So, the thing about this passage is, Elio is basically saying to himself, here is this man who I've gotten to know, who's come into our lives with my family here in Italy, who is just so striking and attractive to me, in the sense of, I'm drawn to him, and he thinks to himself, friendship. Well, friendship's empty. Mm -hmm. Friendship doesn't mean anything, Friendship is insufficient for what I'm desiring. And I think that's such a sad thing because in a better age, you ought to have had this beautiful story with Luca in charge of sets and nothing else Mm -hmm. that told this incredible kind of Brideshead-esque, part one Brideshead-esque story of two men who find in each other the bosom buddy of the rest of their lives, but never, never involve genital sexuality in that and I don't know there's a lot of other issues in this too you're asking about the age dynamics here so that's another thing that in the book is so apparent right like Mm -hmm. this is the story of an older man and like a kid kind of or like a like adolescent on his way into young adulthood or something in the movie, I actually don't think that's as pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's supposed to be pronounced. I think there's a lot of things that Luke is doing in terms of, for example, all of the... Uh, having Elio's father be a classicist looking at um, sculpture yes. and all of this is supposed to have resonances with this. And it yeah. does. But different than having a 17-year-old and a 24-year-old, you've got two guys that when they film this were... 20 and 30 I think were army and uh, Timothy's ages. Mm. And well, I'm not saying that's not an age gap, that's a bigger age gap, but Elio doesn't come across in the movie as a child to me. They both come across as young adults mm. who end up finding a kind of equal in one another and being constantly surprised by each other at the potential um for what ought to have been friendship there in a way that to me just reads very, very differently in Asimun's story.
0: Mm. And before I respond, side note, do you know those memes that came out last year of like people's pictures that were kind of like photo negatives and they're like evil? So it's like photo negative of Camille Paglia evil camille judith butler's evil camille pallia did you ever see those memes yeah yeah so my meme is um timothy chalamet is evil carlo Acutis. doesn't that make sense gosh it, it does because they look similar but they're total opposites of each other i don't know that was my joke um oh i don't take it as a joke i actually think gosh that's it's true though. It's
1: striking and something I'd need to think more about before I comment on. but if I, I know how to Carlo Agucci's, yeah. please please pray for pray us. for
0: Timothy, Luca, and Andre. <laughs> if I know how to make one of those names I would. but um, okay, so I have a lot of things to say. First, just like I, we need to look at the context that this whole plot is playing out in. You have this very well-to-do bourgeois family, the father's an academic. Um, You know, they go between New York, Italy, have this lovely mansion there. Um, But you see that like their moral ethos, their sense of reality is very much shaped by this. When I say bourgeois, I mean, I'm going to use that word differently when we're talking about Love, Simon. In this case, it's this bourgeois, pagan, decadent kind of morality. It's this anything goes, you know. Um, We're not tied down to anything. It's this kind of rootlessness, which, again, will play out differently for Simon. But, um, you know, it makes total sense for their son to be experimenting with these kind of decadent, deviant um, lifestyles, behaviors, and that they have no qualms with it. They're like, you know, go ahead, go, go to bed, go on wrong with him, have a good time. To the point that at the end, the father's like, you know, I wish I could have done what you did, so live it up, enjoy it. So you see what kind of world Elio is growing up into. And it's the perfect setting for, again, the Paul letter to the Romans one vibe, that it's like your decadence, your indulgence leads you over to these kinds of um, these these behaviors that transcend the boundaries of creation of what's natural. Yeah. So it's all set up for this. Uh, and I, you know, and I think we should juxtapose it. People don't really pay attention to this, but they have. There's a couple that lives with the family in their Italian house, uh, and Mafalda, who would represent this working class, very, you know, grounded in nature, grounded in hard work. This Yeah, they're the know, servants, right? Yeah. Or I mean servants is yeah, not like the use in this period. But they're the the cook, the yeah. mechanic. And uh, you, you see that there's this earthiness to them, this like being in touch again with nature, with you know, order that the family is total the polar opposite of. Um, very, a very humble, kind of beautiful, you know, kind of juxtaposition in a way. But so then, yeah, so we see what, all, uh, what Elio is growing up with. And when he meets Oliver, well, let me also say this about Andre. So if you haven't listened to the Andre episode, listen to it because you'll understand him as a person and how he can of this whole plot. First, he is you know he's a classicist like he has a, he's deeply rooted in classical literature classical art so you understand why he's going for this you know Greek pederastic kind of dynamic between the two main characters but there's also this Augustinian bent and he even mentions you know that he's inspired by the image of the restless heart from the Confessions and you know what I what I think is most valuable about Call Me by Your Name is that it shows that desire is constantly in tension between two forms of transcendence either god the creator or something diabolical something that goes against nature but either way desire is always pointing to something that's beyond ourselves which is the total opposite of what we're going to see in love simon um, so you see like andre Simon himself is struggling with this you know where does my desire go like is Augustine right to turn to, to God to fulfill it? Uh, but either way, like, there's this constant restlessness. Yeah, and in terms of putting this into
1: conversation with, against heterosexuality, um, and our first episode here, another thing that I remember Andre saying on the episode he did with you was from his perspective, and he writes his characters accordingly, he doesn't think there's such thing as someone who's only attracted to the same sex yeah. or only attracted to the opposite uh, yeah. sex. So he already, I mean, the novel's older too, um, but in terms of someone who was kind of setting the tone for or um, just a, a kind of barometer for where things were heading. Already, this is a story in the book version, but then way more so in the film version later, I think, that just has no place for these sort of rigid essentialist categories in any way. And that's part of why it Reads is believable. Mm-hmm. And to me, Reads is really compelling. I think about this too, um, on analogy maybe with another of my Movies that I've seen in recent years that has meant a lot to me, uh, and that's the Before series, and especially Before Sunset, the second of those movies, which is my favorite of them. So if you don't know those movies, it's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, a French actress, and they're basically the only two characters in the movies except for one scene in the third movie. But they're set and shot 10 years apart. They each take place on a single day, and it's just these two people, a man and a woman, and a kind of quick snapshot of where they are at these different points in their life. And the second movie, sorry to give something away here, but the second movie is a movie that is basically asking you to root for them to commit adultery um, because they're meant to be together, but he's ended up with someone else in the meantime. And obviously, we know that that's immoral. And by immoral, we mean something that's not going to make you happy, something that's not actually ordered to your true good. Um, But when you can take it with that asterisk and say how great – this story and this incredible presentation of human relationship and um, aging and suffering and all these things, um, how compelling and how real this is. That's sort of the relationship I have to call me by your name, where I think there's something so true and good here Mm -hmm. that then there's also this element of like, instead of rooting for them to commit adultery, what the narrative is trying to do is get you to, be longing for them to come to a sexual relationship and then very um, kind of satisfied when they do. And that's the I mean brain of salt, it's a pile of salt. It's kind of the centerpiece of the movie unfortunately. but for me is the thing that I say, gosh, what this could have been um, is so interesting and incredible. Um, and instead we get something else. Um, one other thing to say real quick, I watched a movie last night also by Luca Guadagnino, that's earlier than this. That's one of his Italian movies. It's called Io Sono Amore, I Am Love. And it starts Tilda Swinton. And it's interesting because I feel like Luca lucked into his source material here with Call Me By Your Name so much because I Am Love is another case of a movie that is like trying to get you to root for someone to do the quote-unquote wrong thing romantically, sexually, etc., But in that case, you're rooting for this wife and mother to run off with her son's best friend and business partner, which she does, and kills her son along the way, and then abandons the rest of the family at his burial, while his widow, or almost widow, is revealing that she's pregnant with the dead son's child. And the mother, like, sprints out the door toward the young lover, who you're supposed to be so happy that she's following her heart and being true to herself and whatever. This is one of... It's not really disturbing because it's not like effective enough to be disturbing because it's just so stupid. Like you can't root for this person to do this, mm-hmm. um, but it's another case of Luca just wanting so badly to be transgressive, wanting so badly to be deviant, yes. and get you to delight in deviancy in this really beautiful way. And again, the the visuals of Iosono Amoy are incredible. Until this went performance, is incredible. But unfortunately, this is a filmmaker who. Is trying so hard to subvert, um, but I don't know. I think there's just, it's a case for me of just missed opportunity.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, I have a different reading of the end um, before I get there. I did want to say something about the pederastic dynamic, which, yeah. you know, sure, I think it is more apparent in the book, but I think Luca does show um, what Andre's trying to say that, love is not love and that's what the greeks understood from all the way back then like the dynamic between you know a grown man whether it's a philosopher a mentor and the young man which yeah let's distinguish from straight up pedophilia these these are post-pubescent guys who are like 16 17 not that it's okay um but no like there's this sense that um there's a power dynamic there's this dynamic of domination and submission that no we sure you can see that in perversions of heterosexual relationships but ontologically speaking that's not what heterosexual sex is whereas homosexuality as much as you may dress it up as love is love love is love and uh you know you can create a gay marriage at the end of the day the dynamic between two people of the same sex ultimately especially with men is this power dynamic there's a lack of reciprocity And, you know, that's this is what I see happening, even in the movie between Elio and Oliver, because there are three main scenes where you see a close up of Oliver's face and he's contemplating, should I do this? I know what I'm about to do. I know that it's corrupt, that I'm taking advantage of someone who's young and vulnerable. And he's 17, but he's still he's still a kid. At least I perceive it that way. And he knows what he's about to do.
1: So I agree that that's Lucas' intention. And indeed, if you follow any of the um, sort of discourse cycle around this film, actually, a lot of the, quote, gay community, gay rights movement, et cetera, um, came out against this movie and said this reflects a lot of the abusive, manipulative, bad parts of this culture that we're hoping the normalization of same-sex relationships can overcome because this reminds me of relationships I went through with an older man when I was younger like this and we shouldn't celebrate this. So certainly what I don't mean to say is that Luca is deleting that part. I think he's trying to lean into it. But I do think that the casting of these two men at these two moments makes it very different than the way it reads to me in the book um, because the intention reads to me as unequal but the reality of these two people um, actually comes across despite the intention of the author slash director yeah. um, as much more um, again, I mean, it's the basis of friendship, right? Is the, the sharing of something and they, they seem much more capable of sharing and recognizing an equal in the other um, in the film to me, not because that's what they're going for, but just because of, of these two actors are and how that comes across. Yeah, and
0: the fact that first the actors are, you know, will probably consider themselves straight, but also just their affect is not very stereotypical effeminate. You know, I think again, it plays into both this Greek kind of classical pederastic understanding of homosexuality being something, I don't know, inherently masculine in a way, or an attraction to masculinity. But also that like the the Paul Romans thing, that it's, you know, these are regular guys who are giving over giving themselves over to these kind of decadent um you know indulgent behaviors and like you see in the fact that um what was i going to say no but also when you see the dad is projecting the images of the greek statues that he's saying how back then the male youth was there's this um this agelessness this kind of Allure of their youth that you know they're begging to be desired. You see, there's something perverse about it. There's something very manipulative. So I, I find know, that scene so disturbing in a almost way, almost as much as the last one when he tells him, "Like, oh, I wish I could have done what you're doing." Yeah, That's so
1: free like as but a the, father. So the yeah. So the last one is the one. I mean, it's the like cheating Oscar bait scene. Of, like, here's the point of the movie, etc. Yeah. But the the one where he's projecting the images and talking to Oliver is basically him getting Oliver his blessing. Yeah. Just just crazy. Not what you wanted. (laughs) Okay, so you said you have a different read of the final scene. Talk to me about it.
0: um, No, I mean, I see, so Oliver calls, hey, I'm getting, well, he's like, oh, Elio, Elio, call me by your name. I'm getting married. (laughs) Um, So then it hits Elio, like, wow, this thing, which was so ravishing, fulfilling, has fallen apart. Now, we can say, oh, it's because of heteronormativity and that society expects them to marry a woman. Sure, okay. But at the end of the day, we know that this dynamic is not set to last because it's rooted in this indulgent, possessive form of love, which, again, ontologically will burn out. So I, can I can
1: I ask a question yes. real quick for clarification? Is this your um, – like you reading these characters as real and saying this is what – we'd say really truthfully is going on here, or is this you saying this is the intention of Um, Luca or
0: Andre? I doubt it's their intention. I mean, Andre did comment on the fire scene. He had something interesting to say, but it's different from what I'm saying. I'm saying from from my experience and my convictions that, again, any form of love that is not rooted in the design of nature, in the pursuit of God is going to fall apart. That's just ontologically how it adds up. And when he's looking into the fire and starts crying, this is extremely hopeful to me because he's saying, you know what, now I see, and me reading it this way, Mm -hmm. um, pagan love burns out. Um, And yet the desire, the fire in my heart, very Augustinian, continues to yearn for more. And I love it because it's kind of a smack into the smack in the face of the love is love narrative that like, no, love does this kind of earthly love, even heterosexual love, is not going to fulfill the person. It cannot complete you. Love has to point us to this greater flame, this infinite flame that will never burn out. And he's showing that like, yeah, my heart still wants something greater. And no, he's probably not going to go pursue God and give his life to Christ, but the fact that he's saying this is not the answer and that the heart remains restless, there's this infinite restlessness, to me is very hopeful. Again, it's my reading, but... I mean, I love that. Yeah. And I think,
1: like, again, taking these as real people and saying what's really going on here, I think that is fantastic. Um, and is a very different way of taking the visions of Gideon um, yeah. sort of needle drop that happens in that scene too because that, of course, is... An allusion to Gideon um, in his visions of God. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a sort of photo negative of the Eucharistic Brideshead ending there. Yeah. Um, but. Evil Brideshead
0: Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to make that name too. Um, so, I mean, also, evil call me by your name, love Simon. So, love Simon, I think, is the contemporary rendering of this whole. Kind of narrative we've been talking about, and also I think it's the natural trajectory of this bourgeois worldview, which starts out as this pagan, decadent thing, which points to something transcendent, which again would be something more diabolical and sacred, but then becomes this very secular, cozy, you know, expressivist understanding of desire and relationships. And you see, like, when you look at the parents, like not as rich not as well to do it's like middle-class suburban version of elliot and his family not as well educated either the mom's like boring psychologist I forget what the dad does she's played by jennifer garner too yeah, who was like one cool. of my first crushes in alias it's cute it's not what you want <laughs> so no but like simon is this again this like bourgeois suburban kind of middle-class kid um who's you know He just lives a normal... And he he says it in the opening sequence. Like, I just live a normal life. I pick up my friends. We get iced coffee before going to school. The teachers are weird. And, oh, yeah, I'm gay. Kind of... You just see from the start, like, this is going to be a very dull story. I hated this movie so much. I hated this movie. I think it was well made for what it was. It's not as bad as Love, Victor, which you should not watch. I won't. No one
1: should watch it. it. It's It's the TV show follow-up? Yeah, I mean,
0: it's not only that it's, like... Perverse, but it's like the writing and casting is so lazy that I'm like, who put money up for this? Like could you hire somebody who's qualified? Okay, so in, in the way,
1: case of Love Simon, again, I don't know if this is true for stateside streaming services, but to watch this movie, I had to sign up for Disney Plus. So that's where this movie is it's available in Italy.
0: That, uh, <laughs>
1: Indeed. So Love Simon is basically how these ideas about um (laughs) sodomitable equality um basically are filtering down to a disney channel audience disney channel is probably dating me but a, a disney audience a disney plus audience this is like here's the version of this story this coming out narrative for normal young teens who in my day would have watched uh you know whatever those shows were Lizzie McGuire and even Stevens shout out Shia LaBeouf Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I hated this so much I thought it was basically the most boring um predictable cloying as you say um bougie cozy story of oh by the way I have a big secret I'm gay and then this dramatic, like, coming out of the closet thing that lasts the whole movie and trying to figure out who his, like, secret pin pal is at the high school who's also gay, whatever. One thing I will say about this, though. So, different than Call Me By Your Name. I think this movie is not really a confirmation, at least not nearly as strong a confirmation, of my predictions in Against Heterosexuality. yeah. Because this movie definitely right. operates in a space of... You can be gay and find out you're gay and not be able to do anything about it yeah. and have it as a secret and have to live in accord with it and then come out and tell the world, whatever. That's all there. It's like this very, very essentialist story. Yes. However, I will say, which again is predictable given that it's unfortunately a kid story or like a teen story um, for Disney, that of course they're going to get a version of this that's lagging behind. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's actually really important and is telling and is a step on the way to the things I was predicting that are much more writ large in adult media at this point, that these characters are not flamboyant. These characters are not queer. I have no idea who these actors are. I couldn't tell you either of their names. The love interest identifies as some type of queer
0: in real life, but
1: not in the movie. But in the movie, these seem like your everyday high school like totally normal, quote unquote, straight guys, and there's even a scene in this terrible movie where when he's come out, he thinks like, "Oh, now I need to like oh, yeah. dress a certain way yeah, or carry myself 16, differently." When
0: he does the little the dance number outside the college, I honestly don't remember that.
1: But given epic. that description, it sounds it like great. I have uh, subliminally blocked this out of my memory really for great. a reason. I that. But. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, they do this to make the point in the movie that actually, no, it's ridiculous that to quote unquote be gay, I now have to like wear tie dye tank tops and skinny jeans or it something. To make use of rainbow colors, you know. Which I think like is actually a step in the direction I'm talking about yeah, in the sense that this right. is no longer um, the same sort of hermaphrodism of the soul or whatever. Basically, this like girly boy. Um, sort of essence to the way a gay person has to carry himself (laughs) that was the stereotype. Um, And instead the point of the story is to say, no, quote unquote normal guys um, who look just like you and me can be like this too. It's everyone. It's, it doesn't carry all this other stuff with it, which is already a way of saying you're not really discovering something that infiltrates and affects every part of your life in this very specific
0: and predictable way. Mm -hmm. The only flamboyant character is, um, I think Nathan is his name, starts with the net, the black gay kid, who I think is much more interesting than Simon. He has an (laughs) edge, he's funny, he's you know, snarky to the kids who make fun of him. says something about the fact that, again, the more interesting gay character is the black kid and not this boring, again, white bourgeois. Anyway, a lot to be said there, but the What I think is most powerful about this movie is not the homoerotic kind of dynamic between him and his pen pal. It's, it speaks to this larger reality of, again, the bourgeois, suburban, secular mindset, which is utterly dull and boring. And you understand why so many kids are now turning to these outlandish, not just forms of sexuality, but like, I don't know. Like, you see where the extreme depression, even suicide, is coming from. It's this flat worldview where the parents are not pointing you towards some kind of higher ideal. They're just these arbiters of your freedom. You know, they're just there to protect you so that you don't get hurt. But at the end of the day, you do you. You you be your real self. I'm not going to point you towards something that's objectively meaningful, and that's going to last in the long run. It's just that you do what you want in the moment. Don't get hurt. Um, Even the principle. The principle is the epitome of, like authority without any transcendent kind of point of reference because he just tries to be cool and make jokes with the kids but like again these kids don't look to adults to teach them anything to guide them towards something and you see that also in their friendships like their friendships are about the most mundane boring things like again let's go to starbucks and get coffee yeah not
1: mundane in the sense of like commonplace no but um, but mundane in the sense of like yeah basically consumerist
0: and Like, let's go to the Halloween party, let's get drunk, oh my god, we're going to the homecoming game. It's like, you see how nihilistic, ultimately, the suburban culture is. And like, again, they wrap it up with the bow on top. Like, oh, he goes to the the Ferris wheel and he has his kiss, and then the boyfriend goes to get coffee with them. But again, at the end of the day, where are these kids going to end up? They're going to be miserable.
1: Yeah, it doesn't even succeed in presenting um, the being true to yourself sexuality thing. As an escape from that. All of the sexuality stuff is consumed into that. It's just another bourgeois lifestyle option kind of thing. That yeah. It's just part of the same. It's just you being more authentically um, shallow and stupid.
0: Yeah, and it's this expressivist narrative, which I think kills everything. Because again, being gay, pursuing a relationship with the guy is a matter of expressing your true self, not pursuing some kind of Uh, this tension between yourself and some transcendent form of fulfillment, which we see in uh, Call Me By Your Name, um, the fact that there's no tension in that expressivist narrative is what kills everything, what makes it so boring and dull. So I've never talked to any
1: high school students
0: about this movie,
1: Mm -hmm. Um, but my sense, knowing that generation, is that this movie doesn't really read for them. It reads for the generation that made it. It feels to me so much like the sort of Boomer or Gen X um, sort of presentation of these themes with younger characters to a younger audience but in a way that's actually not very reflective of the experiences of Zoomers at this point um, because it's all just so neat and tidy and Mm -hmm. contained and I think the... (laughs) If you were going to point to one thing that the sort of TikTok generation is not, it would be neat and tidy and contained. Um, this has to be just so unsatisfying that, I don't know, it again just speaks to me about how much the church has to offer right now to these people yeah. who are hurting and suffering and struggling so much in a way that is not ultimately about oh no, I'm secretly gay and I haven't told my mom yet and the boyfriend on the Ferris wheel and whatever, but it's actually about life being miserable because the world is unsatisfying. And this version of the world is especially unsatisfying because it's not even letting you long for something beyond yourself that could satisfy you even a corrupt version of that. But all of this is just in service of the petty self. And the church can really step in, in this moment and say, let us show you so much more
0: yeah it's not oh no i'm gay it's oh no my life is boring and has no meaning right i'm kissing the guy in the ferris wheel is not really going to do much for you there um so I, i'll just add you know a final note on this with love victor again don't watch it but <laughs> so basically victor is ambiguously hispanic you know Sometimes there are Mexican flags in the house, sometimes they're eating Colombian food, you never, you know, sometimes he has a Puerto Rican flag and the room. It's, you It's know, very Latinx, for lack of a better term. It sounds very offensive, actually. Well, it is. Um, and it's, you know, and he's, you know, they're Latino Catholic, so, you know, they're homophobic, they don't accept him. And You end up seeing more in Love, Victor, how elitist this kind of narrative is because you're basically saying you and your Latino culture, which again is a colonized culture, a culture that understands that um, this bourgeois decadent lifestyle is, um, you know, is not conducive to their flourishing, um, especially considering their economic lack of privilege, whatever terms I'm going to use. But um, you're basically saying that this bourgeois love is love, like do what you want, understanding of life, is better than this backwards, um, you know, developing world, Catholic worldview. Um, And it's like, sure, okay, homophobia, beating your kids because of their proclivities, obviously not good, we know that. But the fact that they're saying like Simon or Victor, you should reject your parents' culture and their faith in order to be who you are. It's like, now we see that there is an ideological colonization happening. Um, don't watch it, but I'm just telling you, like <laughs> the real, the true colors of love Simon come out in love, Victor. So. Can, uh, can I cap this with a story?
1: Yes. So I don't have some like grand point to this, but um, this is just an interesting thing to me that happened that at least points to um, the Catholic alternative that we can mm-hmm. offer here. So, I was in Italy back in Holy Week last year, or the week before Holy Week, actually. It ended up being an impassioned type there. And a group of friends and I went and got to do a pilgrimage, a walking pilgrimage, for the week leading up to Holy Thursday. So we're in the Thursday before Holy Thursday, and a bunch of us, me and some religious and lay folk, uh, one priest, are heading up to Siena to start doing this pilgrimage from Rome. And we're on a bus together. And I'm sitting by one of my best friends, who's a great, great priest, um, and we're sharing AirPods. I mean, I have one in, he has one in, we're playing songs for each other. And he knew Sufyan, but hadn't really listened to any Sufyan stuff since he'd entered into seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I put Mystery of Love on for him and he loved it. I think it's Sufyan's stuff, top yeah. uh, rated song now on iTunes mm-hmm. or whatever, Apple Music stuff. Um, we're listening to the song, sitting on this bus, driving out of town. And it just hits me that in the context of the film, that's when that song is playing Mm. is Elio and Oliver on a bus leaving town on their way to this adventure in the novel. It's Rome. I think in the movie, it's Bergamo. But, um, but here I am with (laughs) one of my best friends, a uh, committed celibate and priest of our Lord Jesus Christ, listening to this song about the mystery of love. Uh, also on a bus, also in Italy. And it was just this perfect kind of example for me of, okay, call me by your name. And some of these other works, not love Simon, um, are examples of posing a problem um, and a set of um, opportunities for longing for something beyond yourself, but has none of the right answers to it. And here I was in this just weird providential moment, which was very unplanned with this kind of, again, here's your photo negative Mm -hmm. meme, but this was like the good version of everything that for me ought to have been in a better age in telling a story about these two guys. Um, It was just very grateful for it. And then went and had a phenomenal time for 10 days, walking, um, chatting, with friends, not just chatting, that sounds superficial, but you're on long, grueling days of pilgrimage walking, talking very deeply with people, in fact, um, for hours a day, singing rosaries together, sharp pilgrimage style, praying the office, having these incredible liturgies, old liturgies, getting into Holy Week there. And anyway, it was just a great blessing, but it it really showed and reminded me, we have the thing that everyone is longing for today. And is grasping at ways to both articulate and address. And the world can't do it and is never going to be able to do it. And as a church, I hope that in the years to come, um, we figure out
0: how to present what we actually have to offer. And in this case, you see the fire of the restlessness of the heart, the Augustinian image. Is not condemned to burn out and you know leave us miserable, but it's through that type of friendship is pointed towards something that will continue to fuel the flame that will fulfill it. So, yeah, the point of this podcast: don't watch Love Simon. Definitely don't watch Love Victor. Um, Call me by your name, and I use your discretion and watch Bride's Head, the original miniseries. The miniseries and read it. Yeah, by all means. So, urban, thank you for coming on again. Thanks so much, Stephen. This has been great. You want to plug anything?
1: Oh, okay. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Unfortunately, with uh, the academic stuff I'm working on right now, I can't say I have anything that I'm working on right now that's going to be for popular consumption. Um, But sure, I'll plug one nerdy uh, academic thing. I just wrote a chapter on the Holy Eucharist for a volume that should be out um, later this year or early next year. Um, edited by Julia Klima up at Fordham, um, your alma mater. Yes. And uh, that chapter is on St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on the Holy Eucharist and specifically on the Eucharistic conversion on bread becoming the body of our Lord. And I do actually talk in there about something St. Thomas says, that the reason for the real presence, the reason why Christ's body is here is because the characteristic act of friendship is for friends to live bodily together. And since the ascension, our Lord has been in heaven and we are here on earth, but he overcomes that divide and enters into the act of friendship with us precisely by the Holy Eucharist. So if you'd like to uh, pick up that volume, hopefully it's not a prohibitive academic publishing crisis. Um, look for that later this year, early next year.
0: Please do. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Irvin, for coming up. Thanks very much.